This is Coda Radio, episode 439, for November 8th, 2021. Hello, old friend, and welcome back to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business, software development, and the world of technology. This episode's brought to you by Cloud Guru. You know they have that cloud playground, Azure, AWS, or Google Cloud Sandboxes on ACG's credit card. Not yours. Get certified. Get hired. Get learning at cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our handsome as hell host. Hello, Mr. Dominic. Well, how are you doing, you fine gentleman? What an introduction. I'm honored. Well, I mean, I recognize game. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Takes one to know one. I got butterflies today. I'm a little nervous. I woke up this morning, and I had a shipping update notification. Oh. You know, so I ordered that MacBook Pro M1 Max. You know, I saved up my pennies, my bitcoins, and I waited for them to rev the M1 platform. And I, I ordered it, and it said, oh, you're going to get it December 24th. And I thought, well, okay, it's fine. I'm in no rush. Then they updated it and said, you're going to get it November 24th. And I thought, oh, all right, great. Then this morning, the update came in, and it says November 17th, which is like next week. That's way too soon. I am not ready for this. I am actually nervous. I'm not, I need to, first of all, I need to prepare the way. I have not prepared the way at all for this. I have like a bunch of stuff I need to back up and archive off of my other machines. I need to do backups. I need to reorganize my entire desk. I got it. I just, I'm not ready for this because the other thing I am legitimately worried about is what if I really, 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 really like it? And then like, it's the only machine I want to use. And what does that mean? And what does that make me? And I'm still going through a lot of it right now. And I thought I had like another few weeks to process this. And then I wake up and I see it's coming. And I think I'm the first guy ever who wishes it was getting delayed and not accelerated. So that's me this morning. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm definitely better than you. Although I did uh, acquire Age of Empires 4. Uh-oh. And I'm irritated that through all my parallel sorcery, I can't get that running because of DirectX 12. And apparently there's just so much crap in DirectX 12 that the VM folks can't make that work. And I think this is a great segue to our Python on Windows for 2021 thing, because I can tell you that Age of Empires is a required part of my life. And if I can't get this running, that's going to be a problem. Well, I know the secret incantations you need to unlock the compatibility powers when they do become available. So what you have to do is you're going to want to keep an eye on ProtonDB. So when you see that that version of the game has a good rating on ProtonDB, now if you're on Linux, you're pretty much done. If you're using the Mac, the next thing you got to watch for is when does Crossover Office say they support that or have a, the version of Wine that has the current version of all the stuff you need. I have done a little bit of reading about this because I was curious, like, what am I going to do with all these GPU cores? I'd like to be able to play a video game. What a concept. And it turns out there's other things I might want to play than what's an Apple Arcade. And so it seems as ludicrously stupid as it sounds, people are actually having good success to a degree with crossover office running x86 Windows games 
on the new machine. So if you want to do like seven layers of emulation and, oh, sorry, not emulation. I was just going to say. It's not an emulator. Wine is not an emulator. Yeah, it's a translation. (laughs) Although the x86 stuff will absolutely be emulation. So, yeah. Well, actually, maybe not. Maybe M1 does actually execute some of the, I don't know. But either way, it's a lot of turtles. Okay, but I'm on a Intel Xeon. And the problem is actually that there is no direct translation for DirectX 12 into either Metal or OpenGL that exists in the world today. And if you go on the Parallels forum, they're like, yeah, dude, what are you doing? (laughs) Isn't this like the classic problem? Like now Apple is going to build some of the most competitive performance machines out there. And it's like when when you're investing four grand in a laptop, it really should be able to do absolutely everything. Even if you only do some of those things occasionally, a tool at that price point should be comprehensive. And video games is something I expect to have an expensive computer with a bunch of GPU cores. So I, I don't know. I, I guess the only solution is the shops des- decide to start supporting the Mac. But nah. it is very funny that we are now at a point where the situation is significantly better on Linux for gaming than it is the Mac, especially with the M1 transition. I mean, so I'm reading on your suggestion, the ProtonDB entry for AOE4. It's not great. This definitely reminds me of back in the early aughts, getting World of Warcraft to run on Ubuntu Brown Edition, whatever number that was, 810, 910, whatever. (laughs) Yep. But apparently there is some sorcery, but the textures, I guess, still kind of aren't up to snuff. I don't know. I mean... I got to be honest with you. I don't play that many games anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like right when I got divorced, I did a lot of gaming. Then I like went back to the mean. But like Age of Empires is so core to my desire to conquer the world. I mean, um, to be Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> I mean, oh God. Uh, uh, it's just my, or I, it's one of my favorite games, right? And this, I have seen very little of this. I accidentally logged into my Microsoft account and it was like, yo dog, we have AOE 4. And I was like, here's $60. That's pretty much me and the new Metroid games, or if they do another Breath of the Wild-based game with that same engine or something, it's an it's a absolute automatic buy from me. That's where the Switch does scratch that itch. It's like the guaranteed I'm going to sit down. Switch is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's, and it works every time. You know, every now and then there's like a super quick update or whatever, but they're actually all pretty painless. Yeah, can we inside baseball? Yeah. One of the reasons I didn't get an M1 Mac Pro is, one, I, I kind of knew about AOE 4 coming out. And I had a feeling I'd end up buying a Dell desktop. And two, OLED Switch. Mm-hmm. I have one of those crappy Switch minis because my kid has the good Switch. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, my old man vision on that little crappy screen. Yeah, screen's no good. It's not what's up, especially for Breath of the Wild. Yeah. Like, I'm at the stupid temple with that, I don't know, octopus water dude. He's kicking my ass. Uh-huh. Anyway, we're off the track here, but. Good game. The situation will improve with time. No doubt about it as more M1 cell or M1 pros and maxes, and as the Steam Deck comes out and more and more development shops target Proton, the situation will improve, but it does kind of stink still right now. I've attempted to make the situation a little better by subscribing to GeForce Now game streaming. Mm, It's a choice. My thought was, instead of buying GPUs, I'll just subscribe to GeForce Now and... They have like RTX and they have 3080s, right? It's NVIDIA. <laughs> so they've got they've got all the hardware. You just run it on their systems. And for the games that they support, it's pretty nice. And it will connect to your Steam library and your Epic accounts. And it'll sync. 
And so if you've bought something in Steam and they have the streaming rights to it, you can play it through GeForce Now. You don't have to like buy it again like you might with Stadia. But the crux of the issue is most of the games I want to play right now, they don't have streaming rights to. So even though I own the game in Steam and I have a GeForce Now streaming account and now I have Starlink so I can actually play games at home, I can't actually play the games I want to play because those development shops don't want to license the streaming rights. The fact that Microsoft Studios makes Age of Empires and it's not on the thing I just subscribed to thinking I could stream it in Chrome on my fancy-ass Mac, yeah. It's part of the service, but you can't stream it, to be super clear. You have to download the uh, XE. <laughs> That's, oh, I hate that. You know, the funny thing about gaming is, like my neighbor recently said, my current neighbor, Oh, I don't game. I've never gamed. I tried Pac-Man when it first came out, and uh, I just didn't like it. It wasn't for me. Never picked up a video game afterwards. Not a gamer, not interested. I said, oh, really? So you don't ever play any mobile games? Oh, well. I love, you know, and she rattles off like two or three games that she loves. Yeah, she's like, of course, everybody poops, and therefore you're an Angry Birds or, or Jetpack Joyride. I mean, yeah, come on. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, it's like a lot of developers invest significantly in their work rig to make it powerful and fast, and maybe have a big screen. And so a lot of them actually make for really good gaming systems. And I, I think it's a great way to burn off stress, to get your mind off things without going out and spending a bunch of money if you went out and bought dinner and went to a movie and went shopping or something. Like, it's, it's a pretty economical way to get your head right sometimes. So, I don't know, I think people, you know, they shouldn't be so dismissive of it, but Let's move on because there are worse things in the world. And one of the things we always talk about on the show recently, you really got to be careful if you're working on a side project that you're not using any of your employer's hardware, time, resources. We talk about that a lot, but Dane got shut down hard, even though he did everything right. He said, so I wanted to pass along. But sometimes, even when you stick to your own personal hardware and time, even when you buy the new hardware just for the projects, some employers hiring contracts state that the company owns all code you produce free time or not at all. He says some many rather enterprise level companies state that they own all of the code you write while you're a salaried employee, regardless of the time of day or the hardware used. So sometimes you can talk with someone at these companies or file a request for a specific project to be excluded from the employer's reach, but it's a conversation and they could say no. I was bitten by this, and I had to stop my project. These days, every side project is a public repository from the very beginning. While employers could still make claims, I at least have goodwill on my side. They can fork the repo, and they'd look bad if they asked me to make it private or delete it. Of course, I suppose that's assuming people are even paying attention. I know it's kind of a downer thing to think about, but it's something people need to be really quite careful about. And if you can, perhaps even have that conversation pretty early into the process of getting the job. Like, I would like to continue to contribute to open source projects and make sure that they're comfortable with that. An equivalent thing that we have here is some of the guys that participate in the network that don't work for themselves. When they get new gigs, they will, they'll have that conversation with their employer. Say, hey, you know, I participate in these podcasts and they're kind of a big deal. And, you know, I'm kind of a big Internet celebrity. Are you OK with me? <laughs> I'm sure they say it just like that, too. Are you okay with me continuing to do it? So everybody's on the same page, and you always want to do that, try, and try to get it documented, and maybe even note it down and date that and save that. I don't know. Do you have any other, like, uh, don't get your ass taken from you kind of wisdom for people to pass along? 
Yeah, as my reputation as a ruthless capitalist, I guess, is going to suffer now. Uh-oh. <laughs> I have never heard of you being able to, like, screw with someone's off-time project if they don't use your equipment, hardware, resources, blah, blah, blah. Nor can I imagine a case where you really want to. I get it. It's great to be able to steal someone's talent, I guess. Maybe that's too harsh, but... Well, first of all, I'm sure it really comes down to what made it into like whatever contract you signed when you came on board and how enforceable is that in your state? So that's always going to be a variable. Yeah, I mean, this feels like the kind of thing that maybe exists. I don't know, not a lawyer, maybe I shouldn't delve into it too much, but I I can't imagine this being like you, you know, you're on Dell's website, you're looking at an XPS workstation, it's roughly $1,800, that has an NVIDIA 12 gig GPU, that's not what I'm doing right now. No, of course not. (laughs) And, you know, you've written your own, let's say you've written the app that's going to make, you know, bring the Windows App Store to the forefront of the app stores. One, I would suggest you put down the uh, the vape pen or the uh, martini glass, whichever your drug of choice is. But how can your employer take that? And I, I just I can say, like, I know I got a lot of crap and so did you a couple what a month and a half ago, whatever it was. Even I think this is too evil. People. You pay them for however, you know, for goals and for when they, the hours they work. You can't claim the rest of their life. That's, that's crazy to me. Sorry, I've turned into a communist. It's over. Not only is it absolutely an overreach, but I am not surprised to learn that it's happening. I could even see some lawyer kind of corporate justification being their work may have been inspired by what they learned on the job. The skill set they learned on the job may have helped them or inspired them with the side project. So therefore, you know, blah, blah, blah. I could maybe see some sort of twisted logic like that. I'm not justifying it. Just these people are sick and twisted and they want everything. <laughs> and so I could see that being why. Right. It's like we're super evil and we're totally okay with it. That's It's just what it sounds like to me. I'm sorry. And that's, that's bad. I mean, yeah, this is a rabbit hole, right? Because corporations have more and more power pretty much have more power than governments in some cases, in some areas, and they will take it as far as they can. I mean, that's just always, that's always how it's been. You got to have things documented. You got to be clear about things if you want to participate. If your employer does that, I mean, it's easy for me to say here, but also consider looking for another job. The market's pretty good right now. It's like, you know, you buy Bitcoin when the price drops and you hold when the price goes up and, you know, you got to like watch the market, you know? Just like you are keen with your crypto there, kid, be keen with the job market too. And maybe, uh, I'm not saying Dane should move on. I'm sure he's very happy where he's at, but it is always something you should consider. We got a couple of like tips and, and app recommendations and stuff. Larry wrote in for visually impaired listeners. He says, I know you guys are a fan of Linux and Rust. He's a little unhappy with the state of screen readers on Linux, although I have heard that Orca on Gnome and Wayland is improving recently. He says, but it's fallen behind, especially the stuff that you have on like Windows and Mac. But there's a project that he'd like to bring to our attention. And I don't really know how to pronounce this one because it is spelled Y-G-G-D-R-A-S-I-L. I I thought we talked about this in Slack. We are not reading from the Necronomicon (laughs) on the air anymore. Remember what happened last time? My bad. But uh, will it make you feel better that it's written in Rust? I like my summoning the old ones to be memory safe. I do. <laughs> exactly. I will put a link to that in the show notes. Just like the new Pop OS desktop environment. Boom, I got it in there. Oh, you did. Oh, wow. I thought we'd get through the whole episode and not bring it up. You think it's real? It, it is real, isn't it? It's real. I have sent a whole list of questions off to Carl. 
But as of this morning, you know, because this is Monday morning, he hasn't gotten back to me. And he's probably not going to. I kind of knew it was going to go this way, to be honest with you. In my Linux Unplugged predictions episode, I, I predicted they'd at least fork GNOME because, you know, they're building on top of it quite a bit. And then the base changes out underneath them and then they have to rewrite everything and then they end up spending all their time doing that. But from scratch, written in Rust, I honestly could see it. You know, so I think the knee-jerk reaction to that story is, oh, great, another desktop environment for Linux. I got to say, the Hacker News comments were rough. (laughs) You know, System76 sits in a very unique position that other free software desktop environments don't have. They have an extremely tight feedback loop with the people that they're selling hardware to that runs these environments, and then they're providing ongoing support. So they have a real unique insight into how it's working for people, what works, what doesn't work. They have a much tighter feedback loop with actual customers that are paying for a product and using the thing they're creating than just about anybody does except for Apple and maybe Microsoft with the Surface and all the metrics they have in Windows. But like on the Linux side, I don't really think any other free desktop environment has that tight of a feedback loop with their end users. Really, that kind of puts somebody in the perfect position to learn what isn't working and iterate quickly. I mean, I don't know. I could see something that's a desktop environment that's Rust-based. Maybe it sits on top of Mutter and has a bunch of GTK userland applications. Essentially a modern Mate, perhaps. Oh, a modern Mate. See, why Why you got to slap them with your backhand like that? No, Mate's great. It's just, it's old school, you know, or, or a modern, or retake on Budgie desktop or, you know, whatever. It's I just want to throw it out there. Make Linux brown again. <laughs> bring it back (laughs) you know there was some with the canonical guys if you really want to do it if you really want to have that fight steal their old branding brown to the core menu brown taskbar brown right (laughs) there is aspects of this that remind me of when canonical just went ah screw it we're doing unity we can't stand this i think we're going to be covering this for three years well the one thing that'll be interesting to see is if they can make a nice power user desktop like the the thing i think they kind of proved out with pop os is they're pretty good at like sizing up a target audience and then building features for that target audience. And uh, I could see them continuing to just sort of execute on that. Like the key bindings for all the window management, the tiling, that kind of stuff, the, the performance modes, that's all stuff that they've added that kind of makes the Ubuntu desktop a little more out of the box power user friendly. Well, moving right along, like you said earlier, we do have some Python on Windows love here, and maybe this will be useful for anyone else out there that's thinking about setting this up. Listener Chris P. writes in, and he created a guide that I thought was pretty dang good, so we wanted to give it a shout-out. He says, I know you've had a few folks write in looking for help getting started with Python on Windows. I've seen a bunch of confusion swirling around of late with folks recommending various things, including WSL as a cure-all, which it isn't. I mean, it is awesome, he says, but it's uh, probably not the best way for a newbie to start coding in Python. So I wrote a blog post that I thought might help. Now, we don't always feature these. So you don't have to spam us with your blog posts. But I thought that listener Chris here did a great job. So I wanted to toss a link in the show notes because it's just recently been updated. So if you're looking for something that is current as of November 6, 2021, on getting started with Python on Windows, well, he's got it for you. And I will drop a link to this in the chat room if you're listening live. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes for those of you listening after the fact, which is 99.98% of you. And uh, I don't know. I just think that's kind of a... 
kind of a nice little resource there. I don't suppose I have any comments on it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's great. If you're uh, if you're living in Windows land or you're thinking of, let's say, you're Windows curious, this is the, I mean, this is a great resource. You know, and not even being a big Windows user anymore, I know enough that I could follow that, and I think I could get it set up. So that passes the bar. And then last but not least, continuing a trend of recommendations from the audience, PowerShell on Linux DM recommended something that uh, I think is pretty killer. So last week, I kind of just got really excited about Bumper, which is an app for the Mac. It replaces whatever you might have as your default browser as your default browser. So you set Bumper as your default browser on the Mac. And then whenever you click a hyperlink anywhere in the OS, instead of launching a browser, it launches a super lightweight, very quick icon menu with icons of each browser you have. You select that icon, say Chrome, and then Bumper launches Chrome and sends Chrome the link and opens the page in Chrome or whatever browser you choose. And this is a great way for those of us that live the multi-browser lifestyle to be really intentional about what browsers open what links. I love this. I would love for somebody to make this for Linux. I very much would love to have it. Well, DM says, hey, you can thank me later. They have this for Android. So we'll put a link to this in the show notes. It's called Better Open With. And it lets you choose between the default or another app you may have installed on Android for like browsers or email. And I actually really like this because I think the the line on Android is like, never ask me again or ask me every time I do a thing, (laughs) which I just don't like. And so Better Open With solves that. And this is a really great little app. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. We'd love to get your emails too, or your links or recommendations for great apps that make any platform better to use. Windows, Linux, Mac OS, Android, iOS. Let us know what you're doing. Go to coder.show slash contact. I'll give you an example of kind of what I was thinking about. Thinking about things that make us a little more productive. I really recommend you go on Amazon and you buy yourself a pack of NFC tags. Have you tried this, Mike? These NFC tags? For customers, but not, not personally. So either Android or iOS, but of course I have a little more experience now with iOS. You can build actions based on these tags. So for example, here in the studio, I have an NFC tag that when I touch the tip of my phone, and now in the later versions of iOS, it's all automatic. There's no prompting, no interaction. I tap the the tip of my phone on this NFC tag, and it changes my focus mode to recording. And that does a whole bunch of stuff on the back end, even turns on lights in the studio and everything. And then when I leave, I have another NFC tag that I can tap, and it turns that focus mode off. And I have something at night when I'm going to bed, and because my phone charger is near the bed, I tap that NFC tag, and it starts turning off the lights. And you can do this with shortcuts on iOS using the automations tab. Uh, Or you can do it with things like Home Assistant. There's a few options out there. It's one of these little things that you can put these tags next to your charger or on your desk where if, say, your phone starts buzzing, you could have a do not disturb tag that you just pick your phone up, you tap this tag with it, and now your device is no longer buzzing at you. You don't have to sit there and fiddle with unlocking it and pulling down a menu and anything like that. It's really kind of nice, and it just moves things out a little bit. So that's a tip for you right there. Go get yourself some NFC tags. They're super cheap. They have nice ones. They have cheap ones. They all do the same. And if you have any other recommendations for software productivity or little tweaks to your work environment, I'd like to collect those. So go to coder.show slash contact and send them in. 
linode.com slash coder. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support the show. Lock that into your memory banks, linode.com slash coder. Then when you need to host something in the cloud, not only can you use the best provider to do it, but you can support the show. You know, Linode is our hosting provider for everything since we've gone independent, every service, anything that faces the audience that we've built, anything that our team uses to collaborate, we've deployed it all on Linode. And there's a lot of reasons for that. First of all, the infrastructure is super solid. Like, we just don't have downtime. There's awesome performance. That is maybe number one for me. And I really have appreciated, as time has gone on, how we just focus on the project or the service we're trying to stand up and not on all the little details of infrastructure. That's what Linode nails. You get 11 data centers to choose from, and every service level is backed by the best support in the business. And man, when that matters, it makes all the difference. You know, Linode has been focused on being the best at running things on Linux in the cloud since 2003. They've been at this for 18 years, and they're independently funded, and they got into it because of a passion for the technology. And, you know, I can really relate with that, and I suspect I don't have to tell you guys out there that it makes a difference when a company is actually passionate about the product they make. You know, it's not just a group of bean counters that got together and figured out how they could make a bunch of money in cloud and then launched a product that's backed by a bunch of VCs. They started because, well, they're geeks. And they really liked this stuff. And I, I think long term, that gets baked into every decision a company makes. It's how they view the world. It's how they think about their product. And when you zoom out over 18 years, all those little decisions add up. And it makes something truly unique. So go try it out for yourself. That $100 means you actually can try it. And go see what I've been talking about and support the show. Linode.com slash coder. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but all of the Apple press, there's so many podcasts, so many websites and blogs and full-time professionals. All they do is talk about Apple. And they're not talking about this horrendously cringy speech that Craig Federici, everybody loves Craig Federici in the Mac community, in the Apple community. He went out, did a talk about how bad sideloading is. And I think because it was on LinkedIn, nobody really bothered to watch it, but I did. And it's really, really rough. Essentially, what's going on is Apple is taking issue with a new law that's, that's uh, in the works across the pond. It's called the uh, Digital Markets Act. And the Digital Markets Act requires the ability for phones to have side-loading apps. And Craig, he doesn't like that too much. But today, there is one provision of the DMA that I think deserves a little more consideration. Specifically, I want to talk today about side-loading and why requiring it on iPhone would be a step backwards in our privacy and security journey. He then takes 10 minutes to make a really tortured analogy about the security of a house and allowing burglars to just come in. And he says, we don't need this. These new provisions, we don't need it because Apple's been getting it right. Look how good we've been that proves we don't need sideloading. Long story short, iPhone security approach has worked. But you don't have to take my word for it. Because the security community regularly says things like this. Quote, Apple's iOS devices are the most secure consumer hardware ever made. 
But let's look at some numbers, because when we compare iOS to other platforms, a clear story emerges. Here's a graph showing third-party data on malware infections by platform, and you can see iPhone barely registers. But the level of attacks on other platforms is a different story. One security firm found more than five million attacks per month on its clients using another mobile platform. But there's never been this kind of widespread consumer malware attack on iOS. Never. So what's the difference? Well, the single biggest reason is that other platforms allow sideloading. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, sideloading is so dangerous because you see, even if it's off by default, people could be socially engineered into turning it on. And that essentially makes us all vulnerable. And so he kind of brings it home back to this tortured house analogy he's been making the entire time and really makes the pitch. So now let's return back to our favorite house. As you remember, you made a choice. You wanted to protect your family, so you bought a really safe home with a really great security system. And you're really glad you did. Because since you first moved in, the burglars have never been more creative or more plentiful. And in the real world of cybersecurity, this couldn't be more true. Attackers are virtually dressing up as mailmen, building tunnels underground, and trying to scale your backyard walls with grappling hooks. In this world, some of your neighbors are suffering repeated break-ins, but the home you have has kept you safe. But then that new law gets passed. And in the noble pursuit of, say, more optimized package delivery, your town requires everyone to build an always unlocked side door on the ground floor of their homes. Now, some of your neighbors, they love this idea, but you're not so sure, because you know that once a side door is built, anyone can walk through it. The safe house that you chose now has a fatal flaw in its security system, and burglars are really good at exploiting it. In a nutshell, sideloading is that unlocked side door. So there you go. That's Apple's position, and they are doubling down so hard on this. That is not Apple's real position. So if if you want the good App Store coverage, you got to read the financial press, like MarketWatch or Bloomberg, because one of my favorite opinion pieces has been, how much does Apple make on the App Store? (laughs) Right. They're basically just quoting the epic lawyers and financial analysts, just mocking Tim uh, Phil Schiller on the stand, being like, I don't know if it's profitable. <laughs> well, couldn't you infer that 30% of whatever number you admitted to as the revenue would be $20 billion? So you're saying $20 billion is not a profit? It's like, I don't know. Pulling teeth, they had to admit that the section of their business, which includes the App Store, is 70.1% profitable. But they refuse, and they say, not only do they refuse... They say they simply do not have the accounting controls in the company to know which percentage of that is in the app store. Can't be known. Can't be tracked. It can't be known because you don't want to know. Because <laughs> if, the, if there's any record from PricewaterhouseCooper or whoever their big five or big, ooh, big three accounting firm now is, that's like subpoenaable, right? You, you don't want to know. It's laughable. They are protecting a house, a very big house in Palo Alto with lots of shiny things. How cringe is it? How cringe is that? It's cringe. It's also cringe because it's like a web developer conference. Yeah, and he's the last one. And it's the whole way it's set up is super cringe. Like 
the audience at first doesn't really know to clap because the way it's set up sounds bad. It's 15 minutes of that. That's it's 15 minutes of that. And while I completely 100% agree with your take, their public position is going to be what Craig just said. And Craig's going to go on all of these different Apple friendly outlets. And he's going to very earnestly say it's all about protecting and their core argument. What it really boils down to is in the name of choice, you're going to strip away people's security. And we offer choice, the choice to be secure. If you don't want that, go get an Android phone. So they claim that it's kind of like this reverse argument that in the name of choice, you're actually taking away choice because you're removing the choice for people to choose iOS as a platform designed the way they have it today. It's interesting that he picks sideloading because I think there is like an actual security argument there. But what he fails to mention in that whole cringeworthy LinkedIn speech at this web conference is like third party payment providers like the one that Stripe is making. I believe it's Stripe. Maybe it's PayPal. One of them is making one for iOS that would avoid that 30% tax. This is where you can tell that their entire argument is basically bullshit, right? Because they're, they're trying to protect the 30% fee. You know what it is? It's because of this Digital Markets Act. And this Digital Markets Act is going to enforce the ability to sideload on these platforms. So that's why they're hitting this so hard. See, sideloading is great, I think, for them because it's hard. The thing I think that would be the real boon, or rather the thing that would damage them, is that they can't enforce using their AIP system. And when I say can't enforce, I mean you can't even say it must be an option. That would screw them over. Yeah. When I listen to this whole thing, all I learned is, okay, they see their future as a middleman for services. And that's just too big a pie to give up. So, you know, in South Korea... There was a judgment that came down that said Apple and Google must allow third-party payment systems. And Google has responded, and they've updated it now. And you can use a third-party payment. You still publish your app through the Play Store. You put in your API information for the payment system, and it comes up on what looks like a built-in Android payment screen. Like, it looks completely legit, but it's using the payment provider you choose. And I don't know if I have the numbers right. But Google is then putting like an 11% transaction charge on top of that. So even though you're not going through their payment system, they're still charging like a a 10% or something like that cut to sell an app on Android if you go outside their system. (laughs) Yeah, because this is about money and being a middleman is one of the best businesses you can be in, right? (laughs) That's exactly it, yeah. I just say prepare yourselves because I think Apple's going to fight this one for the reasons you just said saying the things that Craig just said. Like, that's something that they have been working on for a while. And Craig hit it as hard as he could. He gave it the hardest sell he could. And that's why when you watch it, and I do have a link in the show notes, when you watch it, it's even cringier when you see him sometimes. It's kind of unfortunate because I have to say I had a pretty good opinion of Craig Federici before this. And this really just shows that he's a really good corporate actor. I mean, I know he's also good, you know, apparently boss and technician and all that kind of stuff, but You watch that video and tell me he's not out there selling. That's really something. Well, I mean, they follow their incentives, right? Like any other corporate executives. I don't know. They can't go tell Wall Street that they're not going to collect this fee. Maybe I'm too essentialist about it, but... Well, let's put on our... Is it Anne Rind? Or is it Rind? Anne Rand, yeah. Let's put on our... Put on your capitalist hat for a second. Like, they've built this platform. You know, they created this platform. And, uh... 
now they have to keep the platform competitive and they have to keep investing in it. Like they have to make this money because, you know, that's how they're going to make money on the platform going forward. Now they've sold the hardware and they still have costs. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I could see actually the way Google's doing it in South Korea. I could see that being reasonable if it was like 3%. Yeah, this will be in court for five years. Shortcut.com slash coder. Have you ever really been happy with your project management tool? I mean, most are either just too simple for a growing team or they're way too complex for anyone to actually want to use them. So someone has to constantly prod everyone to use the tool. Shortcut, formerly known as Clubhouse. They're different, though. They're different because they're worse. Wait, oh, wait. <laughs> wait, wait, no, no, actually, no, it's really, it's, it's quite better. Shortcut is project management built specifically for software teams, and they're fast. It's intuitive, it's flexible, it's powerful, and a lot of really nice positive adjectives that they've earned, trust me. But let's look at some of their highlights so you can see what I'm talking about. Shortcut's got team-based workflows. Individual teams can use Shortcut's default workflows or customize them to match the way they work. They have organizational-wide goals and roadmaps. You can work in these workflows and see how they're automatically tied to larger company goals. And it just takes one click to move from a roadmap to a team's work or even individual updates and vice versa. And it has tight VCS integrations. So if you use GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket, Shortcut ties directly to those. So you can update progress from the command line. And speaking of keyboard-friendly interfaces, well, Shortcut sets the bar. In fact, they have a power bar, allowing you to do just virtually anything without touching your mouse. You can throw that thing in the trash. Oh, and iterations planning. Set weekly priorities and then let Shortcut run the schedule for you with accompanying burn down charts and other reporting. So go give it a try and support the show. Shortcut.com slash coder. Again, shortcut.com slash coder. Shortcut formerly known as Clubhouse because you shouldn't have to project manage your project management. Shortcut.com slash coder. So now let's talk about .NET. I think you're going to like this a lot more. .NET 6 is out, and I'm not even really in the .NET community, and I'm pretty impressed by this release. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, there's a lot going on here. There was the whole controversy about the live reload thing in VS Code. I think that's been covered to death, and I don't think we need to cover it. But once again, you know, bottom line, business incentives sometimes interfere with people's other goals hot reload did make it though it is in the it did make it and it was kind of a messy way it made it yeah so it's you know net six it's a lot of quality of life improvements for you um you honorable c-sharp developers working in the enterprise that will never be allowed to update it for two years i i don't there's nothing like there's the compile ahead of time stuff i have lots of skeptical thoughts about that and I say rightfully so. They've kind of taken passes at this over the years. Although, yeah. you know, now they say they've really gotten it. I think this is interesting. So ahead of time compilation, it essentially gives you uh, some performance in some areas, you know, reduces startup time and things like that. And the only downside is supposedly is that these different implementations have always had all these different compromises you've had to make. So I don't know anything about this, but I was reading through on Twitter and it seems like there's several people that have been using this, like several well-known developers that have been using this in their environments for months now already. Like, in fact, that theme is in several of the major features throughout .NET 6. Microsoft, in their release notes, really stresses the fact that they've been running this in production on Azure for months now. But there's also, like, they've clearly worked with certain developers in the .NET community. 
and given them like kind of like hands-on time to get them to start using .NET 6 a while ago. And so they've been using it for a while. And that's, that is a very, it's, it's really interesting how all in Microsoft is here. In fact, I recommend everybody read through the release notes because they're in there talking about like how they're tracking Debian releases and timing the release cadence with that. And there's all kinds of like really deep thought through processes that they're doing in the community. And there's a shout out in there too for uh, Apple development support team that sent them some ARM Macs like months before their main release. So that way they could get working on .NET 6 compatibility for the M1. In fact, the whole ARM 64 support looks really good for Linux, Windows, and the Mac. It seems like this is a release that's firing in all cylinders. Yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying not to throw too much cold water on it. I don't know. I was reading through all these announcements, and I just realized in the last, let's say, five years, C-sharp has become such a just huge language. Yeah. There's so many different ways to do things. One of the features that I would normally be excited about, but I'm jaded, is that this .NET single binary for all platforms. Oh, yeah. See, I thought that was great. I don't believe it. There's going to be a lot of restrictions on that. And also, like I could tell you at TMB, we're doing some MAUI development now. It's very new. <sighs> Man, that's where I was going to go next. <laughs> yeah, Xamarin Forms, because it's basically becoming MAUI in some weird way. It's also kind of busted now, which Xamarin Forms, you could argue, has been busted forever. So I, I don't know. I feel like, you know, .NET's a great development environment, don't get me wrong, but Microsoft keeps, like, this is the holy grail. It's not just Microsoft, right? It's right once run everywhere. Java's been talking about this since the 90s. Everybody's wanted this. It's hard, right? It's always going to be hard. It's the reason I can't run Age of Empires 4 on my Mac. <laughs> I don't necessarily think it's going to be as beautiful as they would have you see in their somewhat odd, very produced videos they've been producing over the last week. They sure are. I was actually, because uh, I was jumping around a little bit, and I was like, whoa, what is going on here? This is pretty interesting. They're, I mean, I, I appreciate the effort on the production myself, but you're right. It is massive, and it's a bit overwhelming at this point, and I can't really speak to the quality of any of these things. A lot of times with Microsoft, it takes them three releases to kind of get it right, and then depending on the product, they either go horizontal for a while and then it takes them like another three releases to really get it right. And so we, I don't know where we are in that phase with Microsoft because I don't have hands-on experience with this stuff. Sure, but like this isn't just like a Windows SDK release or like, like the language stuff I think is fine. Like my preference for languages to be smaller and somewhat simpler is like back to my Objective-C days and whatever. You know, even Python, I'm like, oh, Python 3.10 is kind of getting larger. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. The, the Maui stuff is, it's, it's like the holy grail. If they actually pull it off where you don't have to think about the platform or the desktop environment, then they will have solved the problem, a software engineering problem that has since been uh, up till now unsolvable. The closest actual solution has been the web browser, right? The DOM. But the DOM comes with a lot of trade-offs even today in you know November of 2021. I'm skeptical because the claim is so big. Right, And also, the other big feature they're pushing in VS 2022, the kind of AI code assistant thing, I don't like GitHub Codepilot. I don't want that built into my editor. I have lots of concerns about potential license violations if they regurgitate GPL code. It's just not the kind of thing. I would rather just better IntelliSense via, you know, semantic, uh, like, just like the normal semantic crap that all these you know, code completion things have been using forever. Not 
AI scanning open GitHub repos. That's that's my soapbox. I know people are excited about it. I follow you. Let me see if I can wow you about Maui, though, just for a second. Sure. Because I guess what I would do is I would try to present to you that perhaps the table is set differently now than all the promises since Java. Because if you think about the scope of what Maui is promising, when you just think about how big of a job that is, it almost seems impossible on its own, right? Ding, ding. But if there was any company that would just stick with it for a while and throw tons of resources at it and take on a crazy thing like that, it would be Microsoft. Like Sun was never Sun was never in that position. No, it wouldn't. Would it? Wait, 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 wait. They've owned Xamarin for how long now? And Xamarin Forms is still a wreck. I'm sorry. Right. No, I know, I know. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. This time it's different, I think. And of course, this is the Linux hippie in me, but Oh, this time it's different. It's open source. So even if Microsoft say Microsoft plows away at this for another five years and says, ah, you know what? Everything through Edge now. WebAssembly, Microsoft Active WebAssembly. We're done with all this, right? It's just crazy. It's open source. There's so much community momentum now that they'll never let it go. So it will never stop at this point. Maui is going to outlive you and I. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, VB, like ASP Classic is still around. I'm not saying it's going to die. I'm just saying, think about, think, okay, think about the task they are attempting to take here. Let's take your five-year timeline. Let's say they're perfecting things on GNOME, KDE, you know, all the, uh, whatever, the GTK desktops, and they're perfecting Aqua. Well, I don't know, man. Aqua's looking older than the tooth. In five years, will it still be Aqua? Windows made the steal with the devil to support everything forever. Trust me, I was in the registry the other this morning. It was terrible. The platforms aren't going to stay still. Mm. And I have done so much Xamarin development that I can tell you that even today, Xamarin has significant problems on Android. And I don't care what you say. I don't care what third-party library you want me to download. You shouldn't have to. Right? That Xamarin Labs crap, it should either be in Xamarin or it should, frankly, not exist. I was an early adopter of Xamarin when they were an independent company. It was beautiful on iOS. That had nothing to do with them. That had everything to do with iOS was native code or rendering images. You could not have a list view with images in it, like a table view, on Android without it crashing, either stuttering or on lower-end phones just running out of memory and blowing up. And the answer was what they called at the time custom renderers, which is basically just give up the advantage of cross-platform and write a native view, which if you're going to do that, do it in C++ and write everything native, maintain your own little GUI library, or just use the native GUI widgets, right? Just You can call back into a C++ binary and actually have something that's good. So I think I see what you're saying. You're saying not only is it just obvious that the task is too large of a scope and never going to be completed, but history shows us that by the time they get somewhere, all of the other platforms will be changing and they'll need to update. Or there'll be a new platform, right? There'll be a new platform. Constantly catching up, constantly chasing. Of course. This is a problem, even what I colloquially call Xamarin Classic which was not with the form stuff for like, they would always be, especially right in the beginning when they were independent, racing to catch up with the iOS features that would come out. And there would be bugs and there would be issues and you'd have to patch and you'd be running a pre-release versions. I don't know. I, I'm cautious, sure, as somebody says. I, I think Xamarin is a good tool if you know that you have, let's say, I can give you a real-world example. We know we want to target Windows tablets and we may want to one-day port to Android. 
that's a use case where as long as you know what you're doing, you avoid the edge cases in Android. But this idea that I'm going to write a single you know, MSI or XE or whatever the binary format's going to be, or an app image, right, that's just going <laughs> to magically render these GUI elements correctly and look good and not feel like crap on all these different platforms, including GTK Linux and mobile, seems insane to me. I'd like to mention our friends at a Cloud Guru have a data preparation for Python course. Python can absolutely be a powerful tool for data preparation. Why not learn how to properly use it? So in their course, they'll quickly cover how to connect to various database types, jump into using Panda Python packages for data preparation, and, and they'll even look at examples for cleansing data, visualizations, exploration, and of course, pre-processing data for machine learning. That is the air after all. So I'll have a link in the show notes or you can go to cloudguru.com and search for data preparation for Python. Again, that's a cloudguru.com, data preparation for Python, or use the link in the show notes. We just kind of touched on it, but we got to talk about it. GitHub has a new CEO. And really, it seems to me, although I don't know, but it seems like a kind of a new corporate oversight structure as well. So Nat Friedman is stepping down November 15th. Thomas Domke is being promoted to CEO. Uh, he was hired by Nat shortly after Microsoft bought GitHub. Domka will report to Julia Lewison. Lewison was directly involved with that hot reload drama that we kind of just skated right around earlier. And uh, Lewison was recently promoted to president of Microsoft's developer division. Kind of a huge change. Now, it was a celebrity. And so when he became CEO, I think the developer community went, okay, all right, well, okay, we got a buffer between Microsoft and GitHub. And I don't know uh, Domka Thomas, but he himself says he's not really the visionary type. He's just more of the heads-down worker type. I kind of worry that without somebody who has a strong vision and a passion, it could be pretty easy to get rolled over by, by corporate control in the new structure. Not that I would have any experience with anything like this. But, you know, it just seems like this leaves GitHub in a little bit more of a precarious position. Not saying the sky is falling but I'm left a little uneasy with this change. What are your thoughts, though? Maybe I'm wrong? I don't know. What do you want GitHub to be? Trustworthy, reliable. I want to be able to count on it like because so much of the community uses it. I just don't want there to be any kind of bad bait and switches. Well, there's going to be the stuff that we've already seen, right? Somebody puts up a thing to rip DRM off or unregion code DVDs, or I don't remember what it was exactly. But, you know, the... RMCA, whatever it is, sends the cease and desist and GitHub takes it down because Microsoft's an American company and has to, you know, honor U.S. court rulings. And Copilot's already a thing. Copilot, I think, is bad and shouldn't exist, but that's my little pet peeve, as I said before. I actually am not super upset by what I see people complaining about, the idea that they would tie it closer to Azure and VS Code. I think that, especially for junior developers... You know, Heroku was a game changer for Ruby developers learning what to do, and then they adopted other platforms. Mm. I don't necessarily think it's wrong if Microsoft wants to make a few, you know, a few nickels by saying, here, dog, we see you have a Python app or a Java app or whatever, .NET 6 app, and here's a button. We automatically did the configuration, and we'll go ahead and spin up a Lambda or whatever they call their uh, functions. They call it Microsoft Azure Functions or even just a straight-up Azure, you know, IIS or Ubuntu instance. I guess I'm just not worried about that. I worry about the IP implications of Codepilot. I worry about all the legal stuff with like you get in a lawsuit. Yeah, I know, I know. But I'm I feel like 
that is a transitory risk. Boy, it just feels like GitHub has become one of the key pillars of the internet. And, you know, we've siloed up a lot of stuff into these islands, and it feels like the GitHub islands, it's one that, you know, you, you got to pass through for a lot of internet stuff now. I don't know. I like the idea of somebody that has a real solid personality. I'm, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to Domka. I don't know what he's like at all. I've seen some interviews and he seemed kind of, you know, like a nice guy. I mean, I just want to say, and, you know, we have to deal with the world as it is. And we live in a world of pseudo monopolies and titans, right? So if somebody had to own GitHub, I'm sure happy it's Microsoft and not Oracle. True. I, I, I'm just saying, right? Like, or, or frankly, even like, you know, Amazon, who we've seen what they do to their partners, quote unquote, on the marketplace. I, I don't know. I mean, even like Salesforce has been a reasonable steward of Heroku. Granted, the prices are ridiculous, but... So this new corporate structure is such where Domka will report to Luisen, and she's now the president of Microsoft Developer Division. I did a little bit of reading on her. It seems like she's been pretty integral to a lot of their open source stuff lately. So I know her most recent thing is kind of being, kind of being in the middle of the hot reload drama, but it seems if you look beyond just that, she was pretty key in the rollout of VS Code and some of the other open source stuff. Could we just take like a minute to talk about the hot reload thing? Because this is where I, I go back to being evil capitalist. Where .NET wants to be Flutter? What? Well, okay. I, one, if it's a feature you think is good, that's fine. But No, I know. I, I think it is actually a nice feature. Right, I think it's fine. Right. I'm not, it doesn't, it's not something that would be like a deal breaker for me. But why is it necessarily evil if Microsoft was like, yeah, man, we sell this IDE for like, I don't even remember what a Visual Studio license costs. I remember paying like two grand for them in the past. Why would it be crazy that they would have features that are on their commercial product rather than just giving everything away? Why would that even be like a problem? Perhaps the mistake was including it at all and then taking it away. Yeah, okay, but in theory, if there's another feature, let's call let's call it, you know, convert your code into VB6 or whatever, and that was a paid feature and you just had to pay for it. Why couldn't there be paid features in VS Code? Well, we've gone down that route before. And we actually got a few emails that said, oh, that'll never happen for these reasons. And then we got another email that said, it's already started. <laughs> so you go figure. I don't really know because I didn't follow it closely enough. But I, I guess conceptually, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I think what people expect is if something if something's open source and you contribute it, it's kind of in there. I guess I... I have a hard time really kind of coming up with the complete picture because I just, I simply didn't follow close enough. It seems like the main mistake was taking it away, giving and taking, and then they really had no choice but to give it back. See, I guess I'm just like really wanting them to make a lot of money off making developers more productive without actually like reading their code. And like, that's why I'm, I'm super down with the deploy to Azure button, right? I want there to be whatever you know, the equivalent of Visual Studio Enterprise Edition of VS Code even, where it's like you pay 300 bucks a month or, or not a month, but a year or five, whatever the number has to be so that they can say, okay, we are going to make money off of selling you this product or giving it away as open source and then having kind of an open core model. I know that's a dirty word. Like the thing that really, and I know I keep hitting this, that keeps me up at night is the code pilot stuff and then the new uh, basically code pilot equivalent in Visual Studio proper. That's the stuff where we're going to get into some really murky cases where, I mean, let's just put it out there. If I write something that code pilot violates the GPL on, am I screwed? 
Because I committed it. I put it out there. I guess technically, wouldn't that liability hit me? I would think so. That would destroy my whole business, right? Overnight. You better be checking every line that thing writes for you. <laughs> it's not going to save you much time. That's the reason I won't use it, right? Like that. that Isn't that kind of stuff the true, true value of GitHub for Microsoft? Like the amount of insights they get to development trends from, from all aspects, from people who are just fantastic developers to up and coming languages and open source projects. The GitHub from like a data collection standpoint has got to be one of the most valuable sets of users on the internet, especially for a company like Microsoft, who's building tools that targets developers and, and a hosting platform. Like it just seems almost, almost invaluable amounts of data. And we don't really talk about GitHub from that standpoint, but Copilot shows us in a very overt, in-our-face way how they can use the information that's on their platform, and we're not always going to like it. In fact, we probably won't normally like it. And this is probably just the beginning. Because this is the real reason they must have bought it, right? Mm, I think there's lots of reasons they bought it. See, I give them some credit. One of the many. One of, but I bet you it's, if you put them all out there, it's got to be on the list. Because this is in, getting this kind of insight into developers is intensely valuable. And this is a great opportunity, by the way, for GitLab to email the show. Chris at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Let's talk. I was going to say. Do some advertising on this podcast because, you know, people are going to also be getting less and less comfortable with this arrangement. Well, I do I do wonder, though, as GitHub becomes more and more convenient, particularly for small developers and small shops, does the attractiveness of Hope hosting a GitLab CE instance uh, just kind of start to go down? I don't know. I don't think so. I think there's going to be, it's both ways. It's not a one or the other. There'll be like a backlash. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's getting easy. Like Linode's got like a one click, <laughs> you know, one click, boom, you got GitLab. <laughs> you definitely need to patch that one click one because there is an exploit that makes it rough do a non-invasive DDoS attack. Holy smokes, get it patched. Yeah. You always got to do your updates, especially if the image hasn't been updated for a bit. Go do your updates. Now, thankfully, they are very quick updates because they mirror the repos. Because it's Ruby. You know what I'll often do really myself is I'll start with the base system that's just like Ubuntu and Docker and then just go from there. Uh, myself, I prefer it that way. I would just, before we get out of here, I wanted to say uh, thank you to our Coder QA team. Our, uh, oh, there will be some upgrades in the near future. And if you go to coderqa.co right now and sign up, you can, uh, you'll be locking in the price. So you might want to join right now. Plus you get access to the Coderly report, which comes out every quarter. You get the limited ad feed, but of course, you're supporting the show, keeping us going, make it happen, help us pay for Drew's fine, fine skills. And uh, you can find uh, the show at Coda Radio Show on Twitter. I'm at Chris LAS. Where do you want to send people, Mr. Dominic? Go to Alice.dev. Love it. Dev. Should have had that forever ago. His company's at the Mad Botter Inc. He is at Dumanuko. The network is at Jupiter Signal. And links to what we talked about today are at coder.show slash 439er. Over there at that website, you'll find our RSS feed so you can subscribe and get every episode. Our contact form. We like to start every episode out with some feedback. It warms us up, gets us spicy. We need your emails. Get us thinking, get us talking, and give us your productivity tips, hacks, etc. Coder.show slash contact. And last but not least, you can do it live with us. We do it Mondays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern at jblive.tv. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Coda Radio Program. And we'll see you right back here next week.